Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Bruce McDonald, a filmmaker whose 30-year career includes features like Roadkill, Highway 61, Dance Me Outside, Hardcore Logo, Pontypool, The Tracy Fragments, This Movie is Broken, The Husband and Weirdos. His television credits include Dark Matter, Heartland, Crack, The LA Complex, and the entirety of the legendary Toronto sitcom Twitch City. His latest feature, Dreamland, reunites him with Pontypool writer Tony Burgess and star Stephen McCaddy, friend of the show, for a surreal wander around Luxembourg drenched in mystery, violence, and murder. It's arriving on digital and on-demand in Canada this Friday, May 29th, and in the U.S. next Friday, June 5th. Bruce picked Quadrophenia, The Who's 1979 Odyssey through the England of 1963, a world where mods on scooters regularly face off with rockers on motorcycles, and where a kid named Jimmy, played by Phil Daniels, finds himself at a crossroads in his own life. Maybe the least likely film to find success on the Midnight Circuit, despite the built-in cult that put it there, it's a scrabbly, messy look at a scrabbly, messy way of life, and 40 years later, it still feels angry and electric, which is what you want, really. One small warning, thanks to a cranky Zoom connection, this episode's audio is a little patchy, but I think it's worth the effort. This is someone else's movie. Well, I was trying to think of my favorite films of all time, and I think this has always been one of those. I've got like, you know, it was like 2001, Days of Heaven, Quadrophenia, a couple others that I never get tired of watching. I just, I find it, I just find it thrilling and, you know, life affirming and uh, fun. I'm a big music fan, so I've always liked that. I don't know. I just, it's one of those movies. I just love to see it on the big screen and I love to watch it anytime it sort of appears. So yeah, I guess the big screen question is the, is the angle I want to uh, dig into. When did you first discover it? Cause we're both old enough to have been around when it was out that first time. And I think, it, yeah, it came out in 1979, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think I first saw it uh, when it came out because we had the soundtrack record and we had the original Quadrophenia. We were big Who fans. Um, you know, we loved Tommy, but we loved this one way better. It just seemed way more kind of, they kind of nailed it somehow. Uh, so I saw it on a big screen. I think it was at the Kingsway Theater actually in at Etobicoke. Oh yeah. Uh, but, uh, and saw it, would, saw it a number of times uh, when it first played. Yeah, I, watching it again just in prep for this, I was kind of because this was a music film, but it was also like it's 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 a Ken Loach movie with musical interruptions. I don't know how else to describe it. Like the, the kitchen sink realism, yeah, yeah, and it's a period piece, so the realism is a little you know flexible. But this was a midnight movie. Like this was a movie people would just troop out to see late at night at the at the Bloor or the Uptown or or all sorts of places. When I was like in the eighties, it caught on and didn't go away. And watching it now, I'm really surprised by that because it doesn't feel like it has any of the elements that would pull a crowd. Like, it's it's not a pleasurable film. It, it's good, but it's angry and messy and, and occasionally hallucinatory and, and subjective. So what was, what was the experience like the first time when you saw it? And you knew the album, obviously you were prepared for it, but... I think I was sort of stunned at the... Like you said, the Ken Loachness of it. I didn't know who Ken Loach was at the time, but I I loved the sort of authenticity of it. It felt to me, it felt very true. It felt very very well observed, and it didn't feel like a music movie. It felt like a movie with great music, and it felt like uh, a very well observed, um, you know, portrait of of you know being whatever nineteen or 20 when I saw it for the first time. I was not long out of being Jimmy's age, you know? So the, that teenageness was still very fresh, I suppose. And I imagine that's part of the attraction is that identification with, you know, his, the main character and his alienation and his friends and the kind of the, you know, this desire to try to be cool. And so I kind of, I guess, what struck me the first time I saw it was how true this seemed and how authentic, even though it was taking place in England in, in the past, in 1965 or something, an era that I wasn't part of, but it still seemed very true to my friends and I and kind of how, 
we were and you know we didn't do exactly the same things but it seemed like not uh, remote it seemed very uh, it seemed like our story somehow yeah well I mean every generation experiences angst the same way right we all just think we invent it absolutely it's, um, the, the thing that struck me this time and I wouldn't even have noticed it just because I'm I've internalized the way British cinema looked in the in the 60s and 70s, but Kate noticed it this time. She's like, they're all mods and they're all rebels, but they're all wearing suits and ties. They're all wearing coats and 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 trying to be incredibly gentlemanly and stylish while they beat the snot out of each other. It's it's a it's a very fashionable. Like they're they're all taking speed so they can fit into their skinny suits. It's just this weird contradiction of the the thing they think they're doing and the way they're expressing it. Yeah, the suit thing is very curious. I'm not sure where that comes from in mod culture, but the fact that they even got tailored suits yeah, uh, yeah. was like yeah. amazing to me. And I mean, it was sort of refreshing to see, I mean, I guess youth, uh, young people are always attracted to a fashion of sorts, not necessarily in those, you know, I don't know why they wore suits. I don't know where that come, came from, whether it comes from sort of like East London gangster things, or it comes from, I don't know, uh, the jazz age? I have no idea, but it is odd. And uh, yeah, I found that part of the things I found very curious about it, I suppose, is that sort of great effort they would make to present themselves and their accoutrements on their scooters, uh, their hair, uh, their, eye, their eye shadow, uh, or their, uh, their, their liner. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure where that sort of comes from, but I, you know, you identify with trying to kind of create a subculture of your own. You try to identify with, you identify with it kind of, and it must be especially stronger in England uh, with the class structure and not being able to kind of move from class to class. You know, in their case, it was like, you know, the guy who was, you know, tried to get out by going to the army, or there's other people trying to get out through, you know, decent jobs. The, 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 the ability to kind of switch classes or to sort of trans, transport yourself between these worlds, I would think, or from what I understand, is much more difficult in England, being a very class society. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. so the idea of creating your own class was sort of interesting. Yeah, so they're assembling themselves as, you know, it's it's the, the I was trying to figure it out. Um, in the states, the 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 JD rebel thing was rebel without a cause, and and uh, the wild one when motorcycle gangs and and the iconography of rejecting society. And here they're basically sort of blending in to be stylish, but they're arch enemies are the rockers. They're the ones who look like Brando in The Wild One. They're the ones who adapted American imagery. So their their British rebellion is to be more British, right? To to take on the suits and ties and, and the style, but also still be hoodlums. And the music of The Who somehow gets that, even though the music is, what, 15 years into their future, because it's set in 63, 64. And this this modern rock music, which still sounds, you know, it's it's structured and organized. It's not punk. It's something else. But the movie is the midpoint. I, I was trying to figure out a stylistic argument for it, and I just kept tripping over my own brain. But the film is somehow, like, we're seeing so much of it just through Jimmy's own head, through his... Um, through his quadrophenia, which is thrown out in one single conversation from his dad about how his his mother's family has a history of schizophrenia, and clearly he's uh, Jimmy's not in his right mind. Even though it seems to me that the Bennies are more to do with that than anything else, he seems like he's he's pretty clear eyed on what he who he is and what he wants. But we're in this space with him where the movie just keeps presenting an experience of being inside of his head and having nowhere to go and and all these weird conflicting desires. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I definitely this time through I picked up a, a level of, of a homoerotic thing going on between himself and and uh, um, Ray Winston's character uh, who Ken who shows up uh, the the former army guy who's now a rocker. Oh yeah yeah he mean in the bathtub, yeah. right? Yeah, the, exactly the other rocker guy. Is that Ray Winston? It is a young Ray Winston, a very young Ray Winston, and uh, Timothy Spall is in there as the projectionist too, which I didn't catch the last time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, where they're playing cards. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess you know. I mean, 
Jimmy and and his call him Ray, I suppose. Uh, they meet naked in the bathtub, and you know, he, it's the rocker. You know, it's like I saw their old friends from high school, and they've kind of gone there's a different way. And clearly, Ray is the kind of the better looking, cooler, uh, good bloke. Yeah, Jimmy's yeah. the kind of crazy looking dude. Um. Yeah, I suppose, and his demise with the fact that he couldn't sort of, he uh, wasn't able to defend him. Yeah, he locks up and runs away. Really, really uh, twisted his brain around that, uh, you know, whether it's homoerotic or it's just an affection for his old friend or his youth or his, you know, it's kind of devastating for him. Uh, that yeah. scene was great, you know, that kind of reveal of who he is and... Uh, they never kind of come back to that at all. Yeah, I kept expecting he would return, but no, um, Winston's character, Kevin, never comes back. He just gets the snot kicked out of him, and that's that. But, it, but a great scene, the, the meeting. I mean, I was so impressed, too, of the, you know, talk about the efficiency of the scripting in the first 10 minutes. You set up everything, you know. You set up yeah. the, the lonely man by the sea and his kind of, you know, the spirit of this character. You set up the scooters and the, the rockers on the bikes and that tension. You set up the two girls, that the one that likes Jimmy, the one that he likes, and and uh, it sort of that first ten minutes ends, I guess, with Ray or starts with Ray or, or Kevin in the, uh, but yeah, just a really efficient, great setup of of the story and what's to come. Yeah, and the other thing about it too is the the period aspect of it. it there's really no statement made; it's just happening in the the early '60s. We can sort of get the cues through the music more than anything else yeah. that they're listening to. But I, the, it all sort of coalesces after the scene in the baths when they go out to to get a, a cup of tea, right? There's that, they go to that diner. Yeah. And I could smell the air, like that textured <laughs> old, old dust. That's what they're eating. God. Yeah. It's just so, like, it's so clearly not modern. And part of that is because England, after the war, took a long time to figure out what the next phase was. And, like, this is actually part of that, right? The mods and the rockers are all the next generation of kids figuring out who they wanted to be and it wasn't their parents but the sense of it it, it sort of climaxes in brighton when they get there and they destroy this seaside town which is just has it's quaint and lovely i've been there it still looks like that nothing has changed the games in the in the in the arcades are newer but this this invasion of um of the young right of the new the new generation just pushing its way through like locusts and destroying the seaside. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's very odd. Well, let's, you know, the, seeing it for the first time, you know, having grown up on American television and movies, when you see that kind of English light and you see the kind of the, uh, the food and the thing, there's something that's sort of fascinating because you, everything looks different to, to you, to us here. Mm-hmm. I mean, English have a different perspective on it, I suppose, but... You know, not only in the in the things that are clearly English, but it's that sort of English light, and it was I've always found it kind of bizarre. It just is different. It's this sort of the it's a softer light. It's a kind of a obviously it's more gray and atmospheric, but uh, yeah, it was sort of you look yeah you just I remember you thinking wow this is a different world and how. Never having been to England or not knew much about it before that, uh, everything was sort of fascinating, I suppose, uh, in that way, in the details, the way the things that make you see a movie over and over, each time you watch it, you begin to notice different things or you appreciate different things. You appreciate different aspects of the story or the theme or the movie making. And I guess that's why a movie becomes a favorite is that is that you're able to take away something new from it each time hopefully that feeds you or something you kind of enjoy it's like a favorite record that you put on and uh, you know i never managed to see quadrophenia in a theater i think the first time i saw it would have been on laserdisc yeah because they used to play it i think at the 99 cent roxy that was part of the part of the midnight show quadrophenia was part of that package that included the song remains the same and eraser head and uh rocky horror rocky horror picture show uh harold and maude um 
what else would be in that sort of zone of midnight movies? El Topo. Um, yeah. You know, so it was, and the and uh, of course the Rolling Stones, uh, Give Me Shelter. Right. Uh, so music-y movies, even like With Nail and I would have been in that slot a little bit. That was part of that yeah. midnight thing that I remember the Roxy, uh, we, we, you know, that was part of their midnight slate, I guess. And it would yeah. sort of revolve. It I wouldn't be that eclectic. I mean, it's all about going to see something with a group of like-minded people, right? I mean, it's, it's a way to experience the feeling of the mods versus the rockers without actually having to fight if you go see it yeah, in a crowded theater with people. And that sort of sense around thing, like just the, you know, on the big screen, the stuff like that great sequence when they're riding into Brighton and you have, you cut to the scooters and they have that kind of high, thin sound, cross cut to the motorcycles and they have that rumble and just that alone is sort of uh, sort of breathtaking on the big screen because you just, you know, it's it's, any movie with a motorcycle in it is always worth the price of admission almost because it's yeah. just there's something that's great about people riding motorcycles uh, and watching that sort of sense of freedom and the sense of danger and the sense of uh, going somewhere. Uh, yeah, the, just moving through space. Uh, the kind of, it's also, It also has that Western feel of people on horses or something. Yeah, so yeah. There's a kind of thrillingness to you know the elements on the for the big screen would be that and you know some of the dance numbers uh, which were really great in the clubs and just uh, yeah the stuff along the seashore and uh, the night streets of whatever part of London they were in. Yeah, Shepherd's Bush is in there a lot. I recognize that section of it. And I thought I, I thought I was fooling myself, but then there's a sign that shows you Shepherd's Bush Market and the Goldhawk Road 2 station. I, I'm, that's an area I'm, I'm familiar with. And now it's just this weird, that area is this strange, like on the other side of the market, that long, uh, the market that runs along the, the tube track, right. there is now a giant ass shopping center called Westfield in, uh, in <laughs> Shepherd's Bush. It's just, it looks like a starship. Uh, and it doesn't belong in the world of Quadrophenia at all. These people have never seen them all. They wouldn't know what to do with it. But it, well, it's funny because you, you look at the architecture, even there in the streets and the houses he lived in, and nothing seems really glamorous. It all looks a little sort of, you know, beat up and a little tawdry and a little... It doesn't seem like a world of romance and wonder and beauty. And maybe, you know, the desire of this kid to want to get out of that or to go to this world of glamour he he gets a small window of it when he sees the who on television and black and white and it's as if he's looking at this sort of world of paradise through this tiny you know it's his only kind of portal and it's he's doing his best to kind of see it and channel it but the world around him is so kind of broken down and the people seem kind of broken down and the only light or the only sort of shimmer at becoming King Arthur or becoming, you know, going to paradise or whatever it is that, you know, you're yearning for has got to be created. You know, they're, they're trying to create that, I don't know, sense of somewhere else, maybe. I don't know what the, where the, like the suit, where we we're talking about the suits, wherever that comes from. So it's, it's this kind of, idea of inventing yourself or trying to create uh, I don't know just to create conjure and create a better life or a better something yeah yeah I mean there so has the, to be so the so the, so the, the back so basically what I'm saying is the backdrop was sort of perfect for that because it seemed you know it just seemed used and worn and, and sort of broken down and you know, not in the slums of Bombay way, but in sort of, you know, it wasn't a swanky part of town. Uh, yeah, no, it, was, it was neat contrast for that. Yeah, no, it's the, the world hasn't been cleaned up since the war, right? Like it's still just, everything's where everyone left it. I, maybe that's it. You know, Jimmy can see the future, but he can't get there. So he's tormented by it. And the sense that yeah the mods represent a new movement we're we're introduced to the situation already in progress the the mods and the rockers have been fighting you know there's another version of this where they're they're they've just been fighting forever 
there's there's no like they're not new they're just tribes yeah Yeah. and maybe that's why it resonates so well with rock and roll right because rock and roll is always about the people who get it and the people who don't get it especially in the 60s like my generation is literally about that yeah um and here we have a movie that finds a narrative for it and grafts it on to this story of a deeply troubled kid who's like, I don't know that he's in with the wrong crowd. He might be the worst influence of his group of friends because they're all kind of just... They all seem pretty sweet, his friends, you know? Yeah, they they just want to go out on dates and go to parties. They want to dance pretty hard. Like, they'd they be moshers now. They, they'd want to yeah. go out and jump up and down. Or, yeah. And there's even that, that sort of, that first time we really see how they work as a as a, as a, a collective in the house, when they go to the house party, crash it and start pogoing, which wasn't a thing as far as i know in 1963 but absolutely was in 1979 and there's just this this infusion of the present right into the that's kind of a neat observation yeah that's yeah like audiences would have found that disconcerting but also i think they would connect to it it's like um i'm trying i was trying to come up with a connection for a modern movie but the closest i could come up with is um people singing present day pop songs in moulin rouge the baz Luhrmann film 20 years ago where like they're that's 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 how we can see that these people are ahead of their time because they're tuned into some other frequency quadrophenia like they don't have that kind of ambition and the sound the songs they do have are phenomenal i mean that's just like a great r&b standards and girl group stuff and the music they would have been listening to in the 60s which then became Northern Soul, but it hadn't yet. So again, they're ahead of the curve. When you say that Jimmy is, say, maybe it's about him trying to get to the future, what kind of future do you think he's trying to get to? Like, is it a, a something that he sees, or is it a future he wants just to be grown up and, you know, not be a kid, but be a man? Like, I th- yeah, yeah. I, th- yeah. I, th- I think he wants, if nothing else, he wants to move out of his house. He probably just, in his mind, he's fantasizing about getting married to Steph and living with her forever. And that's the cure. That's the thing he thinks he needs. Yeah. Even though yeah. she's, as it turns out, not nearly as into him as he is to, into her. Um, and he's, there is the possibility for conventional happiness with yeah. with the other girl whose um, whose name escapes me, but who I should, I'm going to look up right now because I hate great, it. the one that liked Jimmy, yeah, with the with the blonde hair. Monkey apparently is her character's name. Uh, she's played by Toya Wilcox, who is who is also a uh, a musician and uh, and a singer, I think, at the time. Yeah, she was great. She reminded me of Lulu. She does right, like it's the haircut and the and the sort of the way she recedes in scenes because Lulu was always really good at just giving up the screen space when someone else was there. But he was, that was such a beautiful relationship, the way it was staged. She was just, it was just enough, you know, but you really felt the power. You really felt her yearning and you really felt her disappointment. Yet you really felt her, no matter what, she was going to watch out for Jimmy. You know, like she understood what was happening, you know, that yeah, she, yeah. it hurt her, but she understood all about it. It was quite sort of grown up in a way. She was quite a grown up character that way. And I kind of yeah, thought that yeah. was really beautiful, the way they... It was always sort of there, but it, it, it was very uh, communicated so well that way. Yeah, she's a much better match for him. I mean, if, oh, yeah, if he you could know, only you know, see you know, it. No, right? you go, those, that's your, you know, you know. <laughs> there's a funny, there's, I just thought of it, but there's a movie that was made, I don't know, maybe five years later, called White City. Yeah. And it's, yeah. A, it's basically yeah. imagining Jimmy's future. Like we were talking about the future, and it's Jimmy... Uh, now older and he's i think divorced or something he's living in lunch somewhere in london a place called white city which is a kind of seemed like a kind of a tenement place and it's based on a pete townsend album of the same name with some killer songs yeah yeah i remember face and some beautiful beautiful songs i don't remember too much about it i just remember there was a swimming pool and i think pete townsend's in it he kind of wanders around a little bit and I don't know if Phil Daniels plays Jimmy or not, but it was really, yeah, it's just this weird companion to, to Quadrophenia. Yeah, I, I'm i trying to remember, too. I remember it was sort of a long-form music video thing, right? It wasn't a feature yeah, yeah, film. Yeah, it wasn't it really was, a movie. It was, it was maybe made for television, or it was a long video. But there was sort of scenes of people talking and doing things, and then a bunch of numbers where Pete Townsend played music at the swimming pool and stuff so yeah and that was his project without the who right that was a solo album for townsend Zone, townsend thing yeah which was you know really great i also love the movie quadrophenia because it's great to see the credit executive producer and having four 
rock stars as the executive producers. That that made me really smile seeing that. Yeah, well, including the late uh, Keith Moon, right? Who he had died by then, hadn't he? It was um, like early seventies. It's funny, you know, because there's a guy. There's when Jimmy goes back to Brighton to revisit, you know, like which was very sort of lovely. He goes back. Did this happen? Could this have possibly happened to me? Was this? Did I get to make out with this amazing girl and have this incredible time? And he goes and sits in the diners and he's sitting on the beach. And there's a scene with a guy swimming. Do you remember that? He's got yes. a bathing yes. cap on. And I'm Keith yeah. thinking, yeah. it looks like Keith Moon. But maybe, I think he was, maybe he had already died or I don't, I don't. Yeah, I looked it up. He died in September 78. So it's wow. possible. I thought so that was Terry Jones. <laughs> Terry Jones. For a second, they have that similar look. That's true, but it's an odd, it's an odd uh, cutaway. I'm not quite sure what it means or who, who that is. I always imagined it was Keith Moon somehow, but I don't know, because he sort of looks like him, but you're right, it could be Terry Jones. Yeah, I don't know that it's either of them, but there is that certain <laughs> sort of avuncular presence that that character has where he's just out on it. I mean, it's obviously a crappy day and there's a, a middle-aged man in the water He's probably not but even as like old that, as he you looks. Know, we're talking about the future, you know, that he sees these different models of his future. I mean, could that be part of that theme? You know, could that be me, like, coming, you know, you have all these old people going to Brighton and sitting on their weird beach chairs, or <laughs> is he going to yeah. be his dad, yeah. which was so beautifully, you know, and they have the fight, and then, you know, they kind of make up, go, they go upstairs, and you just see dad sitting alone in his house in his undershirt, all his dreams are are lost, and it's just it's just heartbreaking, you know, to see yeah. this uh, this is the life that Jimmy's fated for in a way that he's I guess desperately trying not to be that guy. Yeah, it's funny too that that scene gives us you're feeling the same thing I felt, which is a sudden surge of empathy for the father who has we have watched him just push his son down a flight of stairs, right? Like we shouldn't like this yeah, guy, yeah, shouldn't like this but guy. Yeah. In, we also know how much of a dick Jimmy is being to him. Like there's a yeah. there, there aren't a lot of movies that really depict that kind of familial tension and still manage to show us everyone's perspective. You know, I'm thinking of stuff like The Outsiders or River's Edge where the parents are alienated from their kids as well. They're just, they're not even part of the movie sometimes. They're just right. phantoms or specters or they're monsters. And yeah. here, everybody is allowed to be just, even, yeah, you know, like not just Jimmy and his parents, everybody is allowed to be good and bad and terrible and, and messy. The... That's what I brought up Ken Loach earlier. It feels like a documentary so often, even though it yeah. isn't, because it's yes. everything is manufactured and it's artifice and, and it's set 15 years before they're shooting it. But it, the realism of it is really striking. Yeah, the, the, the fact that it is a fiction film, and there is a manufacturing to it, but it's done, it's, to me it's done so well that it doesn't seem processed. It seems caught half the time, and it seems yeah. well-observed. You don't think, oh, these are sets on a soundstage. These are real houses the casting of the faces of the people was phenomenal like what you said from the projectionists to the mother like that two shot of the mother and the dad sitting in the glow of the television light and he's kind of half asleep and you're like that is such a perfect uh documentary shot you know it's yeah. not glamorous and it's not they're not movie parents or they're not so i guess which was going back again what was sort of stunning uh, to somebody, uh, you know, to still at a fairly young age, I guess, is to see a movie where everybody, uh, as you said, wasn't black and white. Even Pete, the the, the boyfriend of of uh, Steph, that scene in the in the in the in the lot where he's working with the blowtorch, and you know, he comes off. He's like an okay bloke, right? And he's just this is the way it is, yeah. Jimmy. And uh, and you go, oh, okay. So instead of being the bad creepy guy and even sting going from ace face to the bellboy was just yeah. beautiful so i yeah. kind of love that about it, is that you that everybody's allowed a dignity and everybody's allowed a they feel full like full people in a way rather than markers for a plot or markers for a theme or they seem to exist independently of the of the wishes of the filmmaker in a way yeah. you know yeah 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 it's that classic thing of the theater argument right you want to believe that they're going off and living their own movie where whenever they're not around they're still they still exist they're not just you know chess pieces to be pushed into a scene and used in that one moment 
And yeah, we haven't mentioned Sting yet, and it is, it's such a fascinating, like, deliberately one-dimensional performance where he's, <laughs> he's just giving just attitude to everybody around him. <laughs> and you realize, like, that was what Sting did better than anybody else. He's he's incredibly good at that, at occupying yeah. that space of yeah. being the coolest man in the room, even though, as we learn, he, he's just a person. But that, like, the, the moment where he sort of lets him, he gives up and when they're dragging him into the police van in Brighton and he's, he fights and kicks and fights. And the second those doors close, he offers everybody cigarettes and he's relaxing and he's just charming. <laughs> I, the sense that we never see the real guy. And then, back, you know, the next time we see him, he's in court and he's pulling out his checkbook to pay his fine uh, as a gesture and a flourish of rebellion. And everybody loves it. But so, OK, he has money or does he because he works as a hotel bellboy and wears a silly silver suit and is clearly not nearly as um, commanding or as, as uh, like he's fumbling with like, that great visual image of him fumbling with the three cases. Oh, uh, because, yeah. And it says everything about him, which is you know, like he's too proud to get a cart or he's so low that they won't give him one. And either way, <laughs> yeah. right? right? Either way, either it works. Way it works. <laughs> but you do feel that humiliation, that little bit, that little crack in his armor there, you know, for yeah. that sort of moment. Just more for the, not so much for the acting, but for the, for the action of that scene. And you're like, and you sort of, there's a moment there you go, oh yeah, the poor bastard is like, you know, he probably loves his little bellboy uniform because it's kind of groovy, but it's like you feel, you go, oh yeah, you totally get why he is ace face, why he, you know, has the greatest scooter, why he has the greatest clothes and the greatest hair, because it's got to be something that helps destroy this humiliating job that I have that I can't I can't let anybody know that I do you know and it's uh yeah again it helps make him you know more you know at least two two faces or two 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 sides to to the bellboy yeah and he's the analog of Jimmy too because Jimmy also has a menial job in fashion probably we never really find out what it is exactly he does he's a runner as far as I can tell in the fashion design office but his rebellion is self-destructive right he doesn't go into work or he steals the photos he's supposed to be he's just he hasn't figured out the trick that Ace has of just doing your thing to finance the world that you want to be in right even right. though like he's clearly barely keeping his head above water with that because <laughs> ace is spending way too much money on clothes and jimmy is he has one suit that he's very excited about but he's also yeah. ruining his prospects yeah when um is it roger the uh, steph's boyfriend who offers him a job in in the rubbish yards because yeah. Yeah. he's not a bad person either yeah as you said he kind of looks out for him Every single person is better put together than Jimmy, which is, you know, obviously that's why Jimmy's the protagonist, because it's the most interesting. But yeah, you're just you're watching someone actively turn down help for two hours. And it's it's somehow it's exhilarating because he keeps escaping, because the pursuit of the escape is the thing that makes it rock and roll, the thing that the Who's songs are about. It's just about not being able to take any of it. I, I get why it caught on in the States, because it's so, the visuals are just foreign enough, but the iconography is purely American. And that's the music as well as the movie. It's, yeah, uh, it's really fascinating that it captures something that the um, the band never really tried to do again, I don't think, um, in terms of their, their ambition, right? Because it was Townsend who wanted Tommy to be the opera. It was Townsend who wanted Cornifidia to be an epic. Yeah. And yet... They, this was the one time it all came together on the scale that they wanted. Because, I, I mean, I love Ken Russell's Tommy, but that film is insane. <laughs> yeah, I want to see that again. I'm going to see that again tonight, I think. Because I was like, okay, I want to, I remember seeing that too. But there's something about Quadrophenia that is, is like an integrated whole. It all kind of, it's, it's a kind of a beautiful lead thing. And I remember the Ken Russell film for its like insanity and excess and loved it for that. Yeah, but for yeah. the for the beating heart of a character of Jimmy watching Jimmy, like turn down as you said, turn down everything and look at all the options that he has as living at his home, working at this job, like when he's racing across the cliffs, these beautiful white cliffs at the end on his silver motor scooter. Yeah, I had a flash of like remember the opening of Brazil, the Terry Gilliam movie where the guys sure. flying in that silver suit in the air yeah, yeah. and it's this kind of you know Don Quixote like uh, character on a horse and it had that sort of Englishness yeah. about it it had this sort of 
oh my God, Jimmy is a total, he wants to be King Arthur. It's like a, an Arthurian or a kind of very Englishy something there that was very epic and beautiful uh, that he finds that one little moment. I don't know what happens to him at the, I guess White City tells us what happens to him. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you. The ending is deliberately ambiguous. Um, Kate's immediate thing was, oh, he threw, the, he threw the scooter off so he can go off and live his life. And it's like, I don't know that that's how that was supposed to land in 79. It feels like uh, the, the freeze frame to me feels like a tragedy. It feels like we just don't see Jimmy's body. I mean, we know I know White City continues his story, but in that moment, it felt pretty ambiguous and really ambivalent to me about what happens to Jimmy. Does he go off the cliff with the scooter? Is that, it feels like he's revving himself up to do it. The, what is that, five minutes of tracking shots and helicopter shots, which are incredibly terrifying to watch now. I thinking, know, you're, I'm thinking like watching, is that a stunt guy or is driving or is that Phil Daniels? And he did, looks like he did a lot of his own drive near the, yeah. drive near the cliff, a little closer to the cliff there, Phil. Yeah, yeah. with the wind with from the, the car. Like, that's not healthy. That can't be good. <laughs> I was actually, I mean, I've seen the movie before. I know he's, he's going to make, the actor will survive this. But it's, it this time through, I, watching it on a larger screen than usual, it was pretty intense. Um, just realizing that, oh yeah, this is 1978 or 79. There are no digital cables that we've been erased, right? Like there's no support for him. That's a guy on a scooter on the edge of a cliff with a helicopter 20 feet away. That's rock and roll. Oh my gosh. I like the scene too, where he's uh, you have the ad guys in the bathroom. They're discussing their their new campaign targeted at the youth. Yes, and then you can hear Jimmy vomiting in the uh, thing, and he comes out. He's like, it's like, who is that actor? Who is that British actor that plays the the boss? He looks so familiar. He he's like the. Do you know the guy I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, the one who shows up on the train again later. This sort of generic, yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, yeah generic yeah. authority figure. Yeah. But he's perfect at it. He's just like the guy yeah. with the attitude and the thing. And talking and talking about the characters too that come back with a surprise. The scene too with the mother who seems so benign and kind of on Jimmy's side when he finally returns to the house and she turns on him and she kicks him out. Yeah. It's so surprising and so heartbreaking. You know, you can you can understand her rage and her pain. And it's just such a harrowing scene. It's just pretty beautiful. Yeah. Well, and it's the reverse of the dad, too, right? Because he was introduced as angry, and then we got a glimpse of him as, That's as right. warm. Yeah, he's, he's kind of the and flip. So, yeah, we just assume she'll be the one who forgives him. But nope, yeah. she's just, she's had it, too. And even to the point where that great moment, too, where Jimmy roars off into the night, and his dad is chasing him down the street, and, and yeah. the lights start to come on in the overhead, in the in the bedrooms of the of their neighbors. And we even see people sticking their heads out. It's just, again, it feels real. It feels like they just yeah. shot this on a street somewhere, yeah. and they they didn't have actors with lines. They're just, we're yes. going to cause a commotion and capture whatever happens. The, yeah. the sense of, like that, it's that first shot, too, which is longer than I remember it being every time of... Jimmy and his friends going to the house party and Jimmy going into one room and coming out and going back in and then starting to jump up and down with the partiers. It's chaos, but the camera gets through, right? They're obviously, people are, are shaping them, themselves around this, and I shouldn't be surprised because that's how movies work, but it feels so weird every time I'm convinced that there's going to be an elbow thrown into the camera. It just... Yeah, just, like you're right doesn't... in this fray, right? And it's... Uh, and again, you're not on a... You're not on a soundstage. You're not on a set. This is a real house. And his house was tiny uh, as a place. Yeah. You know, his little room and his... I mean, maybe that was a set. I don't know. Like, I know nothing of the making of this film or I know nothing of the director, Frank Rodin. Yeah, he made The Bride with Sting later and Jennifer Beals, this, this forgotten Frankenstein movie from 84, 85. It's not very good, but... That's what he was up to. He oh. um, he was apparently it was work for hire. He wasn't. I mean, he wrote it and directed it with with the Who's yeah. active participation as producers, uh, and they produced it very closely. But yeah, it, he'd never made anything like this before or since. Wow. Yeah. Like the right guy for the right job at the right time. I know. It's like it's kind of like wow, Frank. Way to go. <laughs> you know. It's like oh my gosh. Where can yes. you find? Where, I was just question. Where can you find out stuff like that about? 
you know, say I wanted to look into like, well, how did they make it? Or are there stories about the making of it? Or like, I know lately there was just some, I was shooting in England, a TV show. And one of the, the one of the women who was the, she was the, um, the chaperone for some of the young actresses. And <laughs> it turned out she was Jimmy's sister. She was the girl in the thing. And I oh, was the, freaked oh, out. Yeah. I go, oh my God, Kim, yes. So Kim was all kind of shy and embarrassed. I go, Kim, you got to understand, I love this movie. And tell me. So she told me a couple little stories about Brighton and thing and how Phil was a great guy and all that. But it made me want to, I don't know, at like at the British Film Institute, would they have... I, you know, it's funny. I Because I have the... Um... I have the Criterion Edition here, which is my go-to on everything, and there isn't. There's a commentary track on it, but there's no making of stuff. There is, uh, instead, they have two French television documentaries from the 60s about mod culture in England, which is fascinating, but not actually illustrative. And it's almost as though someone in the line of production here made a conscious decision to keep it mysterious. There are, like, there are stories in the commentary track, but the... Um, the larger sense of it, I, I'd love to see. What is it now? Forty-one years later, I'd love to see a yeah. proper, uh, a proper investigation. We're further away now from the movie than the movie was from the era that it was supposed to take place. Yeah, in. yeah, 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 yeah. God, yeah. three, almost three times as far. But yeah, that's the sort of thing that I mean. We're all just sitting around now. We should get on. <laughs> there must be. There will be. I think there'll be contemporary interviews, magazine pieces, and things from the time at the from the era. But um, yeah, I was surprised at the the dearth of on-set footage and material that I wasn't able to find very much anyway. Was that common back in that day to do, uh, I guess in the day they would call it electronic press kits? And yeah, I'm sure they must have shot something. Like it's the Who making a movie in 1979. They yeah, must have had so, coverage, right? Yeah. right? They must have had people. That's something to chase down. But the film itself is this. I mean, you can sort of see the stitches and all the pieces of it in place if you really like just look at it and... and abandon yourself to it i'm surprised every time it's never the movie i remember um every time it's this time it was the kitchen sink aspect that really caught on to me the last time i saw it i hadn't yet gone to england i hadn't been there Um, and so the space of it the scale of it all of it is now familiar to me where at the time it would have felt strange and alien and and suffocating yeah i mean north americans don't really understand how small everything is in europe just because so much of the materials are older so much of the the homes and the the buildings you know, other than new builds they were designed for people with less space and less everything yeah, yeah. so i've been in um you know little row houses in 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 wales that are as small or smaller than jimmy's house and you just feel yourself shrink when you go inside because you're trying to figure out how to fill the space in a way that you can. Whereas here we have higher ceilings and wider walls and hallways are yeah, bigger. Yeah. And this time it felt much more familiar and I could plug into the realism of it. Previously, I think I always just accepted it as an alien world. There's a great book by uh, it's a guy named Edward Rutherford. He's like one of these British, uh, it's, the book's just called London. And it's one of those historical you know, um, fiction books. It starts with London in the time of Caesar, uh, and every chapter kind of jumps ahead to 400 years, and there's like a working family and some kind of royal or rich family, and follow these threads through to today. But it's a really, if if you know London or you uh, know part of it, it's a really kind of fun, easy book to read, and you watch the city grow from nothing to what it is and why certain things are the way they are in this kind of very, you know, traditional historical fiction thing. So, if, you know, it's just one of those great, uh, if you love London, it's a, it, you might find it really curious and interesting. Yeah, I'll go see if I can. We may actually have it. Kate has a whole shelf of London books. I'll go see if it's up there. Um, did you get that with Luxembourg when you were shooting Dreamland? Just because it seems like such an odd location. That was really odd, but it was like... Good fun. I mean, it's always a way. It's always fun when you're away, and you're with a new tribe of people, and they sort of embrace you and uh, take you out, and you discover the things that are particular to that world. And yeah, and just being in Europe, you know, is just such a kind of like you know has that sort of just Euro feel, and um, you know, everybody does things a little bit differently, but yet it's all the same. Like there's this kind of universal language the universal film language 
but it's interesting because oh they grips do it this way or they hours are this or the uh they call this guy this thing and it's kind of fun because you're comparing different you're comparing your styles with each other and sometimes you win sometimes you don't um <laughs> but uh yeah and then you you know it's just such an amazing amazing thing to go especially on that because you go as just you know it's you and maybe your producer or somebody else and everybody else is completely brand new so by and by the end of it you know you've made some really great friendships with people you've made some really uh had some really hilarious times because you go through this intense intense thing together uh and it no matter what it sort of bonds you like no matter what you see these same people 15 years later you can pick right up where you left off so it's a really lovely thing to kind of come and now you know whenever i return i've been back a few times since then and it's you know there's favorite people to see and some favorite joints to go and uh you feel like you've got another piece of the planet that feels like home yeah i do love that about spending any amount of time in a place and and to uh to wrap the podcast up, I guess the the final question is always pretty much the same. Uh, I don't know that it will tie into Dreamland specifically, but is there anything of Quadrophenia that you have borrowed or lifted or stolen or just absorbed into your own work? Uh, getting in my son, uh, <laughs> something Jimmy says. No, I think thinking about what I've taken from that film or what I love about it, I guess, I mean, it's always you know, again, the, the, the embrace of music is just something that that film does so well and that I try to do, you know, and, and enjoy doing, working with musicians. Um, yeah, uh, other than that, uh, thematically, you know, uh, you know, Dreamland has a kind of doppelganger and Quadrophenia has this sort of notion of a kind of quadro guy but he's not really he's just sort of i don't think he's really a split personality i think he's just in trouble yeah a little bit um i mean ace is his doppelganger if anything right he's the more successful version of jimmy i guess so yeah like when you see the two of them in the paddy wagon that kind of you know suddenly there they are and that's a really neat observation of that doppelganger thing so i don't know i mean i can't really think of what I've taken from that, but watching it again, I watched it last night again, just for fun. And I think what I will take from it, or I hope to, you know, because it gives you something every time you watch it. And I think the things that I would love to take from it to carry on would be this kind of incredible casting, incredible sense of casting. I think this kind of very beautifully observed world, like call it the Ken Loach world or, but, this was a world that wasn't made. Dreamland is just a bunch of made up stuff. It doesn't really land in anywhere. It's just some sort of nowhere land. Mm -hmm. But I find the Quadrophenia land much more interesting. And it's a well-observed world because it's coming from Townsend. It's coming from this culture. It's coming from this people. It's coming from this class. And I find that so much more powerful and meaningful because it becomes universal somehow. And that focused, I think, I, and I can speak as a suburban kid in Toronto, it speaks universal truths, you know, to you about identity and love and friendship and all these things. So I hope to take away from it the, you know, the beauty of that kind of human observation that was just, just that masterful and so well done. And now I'm gonna watch some Ken Loach films. <laughs> which, ones, which one should I watch? Ooh, uh, well, Kez, I guess, is the obvious one because it's set right around the same time, maybe a couple of years later. Called oh, Kez? Kez. It's about a boy and his falcon, a kestrel. And what else boy would work? Falcon? Yeah, it's about a kid who raises, um, who raises a falcon or, or bonds with one as an escape from the miserableism of his world. Yeah, it's, um, I want to say 67. I think it's on the Criterion channel still. There is an excellent Criterion edition of it. There's stuff out there. He also made a movie called um, The Angel Share, which is so unlike him in that it's fun and optimistic. And uh, it's about um, it's about whiskey. It's about people trying to steal a, a rare cask of whiskey. Uh, oh, I think, wow. I think you yeah, won. When, the, when there's a little space in the, in, the, yeah. in the batch or something like that? Yeah, it's it's what's left over in the bottle. 
Right. Okay. Wow. And does he come from the theater, Ken Loach? Uh, no, he directed for television, so that might be part of it. Early on, he he did some stuff with staging, but no, as far as I know, he was always a, a, a he always told stories with a camera. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know if Quadrophenia really is as Lochian as I think it is, but it's that just that sense that you're looking through a window instead of a screen that you're watching people exist. Yeah, and I think you're watching it. You know, yeah, it just feels observed, and it's a certain class, and I just think. It's just refreshing. You don't feel, you know, you just, I just didn't feel guided or pointed or persuaded somehow, you know what I mean? By the style or the machinations of the filmmaking. It's, it's a very, uh, yeah, it seemed very just there. Yeah, I, it's, it's tactile. It you just led. Yeah, just let it... Anyway, I was very excited to see it and very excited to, to talk to you about it. It's nice to kind of, you know, just to, like Quentin says, like, you know, you go see a movie and have some pie and talk about it, you know? Yeah, that's what this is about. We're just, yeah. we're all about advocacy. My thanks to Bruce McDonald, whose new film Dreamland will be available on digital platforms and on demand in Canada this Friday, May 29th, and in the U.S. next Friday, June 5th. If you feel like digging into his filmography, go look up The Husband and Weirdos. They deserved a bigger audience than they got. Thanks also to Suzanne Sheridan. She knows what she did. Bruce isn't on Twitter, which is a shame, but you can find Quadrophenia in a fine Blu-ray and DVD special edition from Criterion, as we discussed. It's also available on iTunes in Canada, and on iTunes, Amazon, and Canopy in the U.S. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Jordan Heath-Rawlings' The Big Story continues to be essential listening every weekday through this COVID crisis. Stay inside. Watch movies. I'll see you next week.